It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. You are Locked On Jazz, your daily podcast on the Utah Jazz. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. It is Locked On Jazz for the 15th of October. The author of Culture Code, Daniel Coyle stops by. What defines a great culture? How much does a narrative keep a culture going? Rudy's tweet, and how do players feel safe inside of a group in this environment? Plus, what does it make to be a top 10 offense for the Utah Jazz this season? That's what's coming up on today's edition of Locked on Jazz. How are you? I'm David Locke, radio voice of the Utah Jazz, Jazz NBA insider. This is Locked on Jazz, your daily podcast on the Utah Jazz, giving you insight, expertise, and geeky numbers. We'll do that today. I promise you can get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or on any of your smart speakers. Just tell them to play podcasts, Locked on Jazz. Coming up on today's show, I'm pretty excited about it, for the last Three weeks on Locked on Jazz, we've been interviewing the jazz players with the theme of the book by Daniel Coyle, Culture Code. He joins the show today and tomorrow. We'll do uh, two, he'll do the second and third segments both the next two days. What defines a great culture? How much does narrative dictate? I get into a story about how everyone tells about how great pop is. And I think the story can be told the exact opposite, but the narrative is there. So I asked him about that. And in last segment, Rudy's tweet, how much that fits into culture and the social network world and how athletes are supposed to feel safe. Uh, so that's what's coming up on today's program. I did a ton of basketball research this weekend, and I want to lead off with that on today's show. And that is on what's important offensively. How is it that the Jazz get to be a top 10 offense? Uh, and breaking that down a little bit on the show. Today's show is brought to you by Murdoch Chevy, by The Athletic, and by Mizuma USA. All right, so if the Jazz want to be a top 10 offensive team in the NBA this year, if, you know, ideally you're top 10 offensively, you're number one defensively, you're really competing for it all. Last year the Jazz offense was 16th in the league. So what would it take to become top 10? The first thing is you look at the four factors, and the four factors are shooting, effective field goal percentage. The second thing is free throw rate. The third thing is offensive rebounding, and the fourth thing is turnovers. So I really looked at all these things and then also looked at like what really matters as well. And there was pretty interesting. So of those four, of effective field goal percentage, boy, does that ever matter. There is the most incredible... Court, that, that's all that matters. And the fact that Quinn Snyder's offense got the Jazz the most amount of open shots of any team in the league last year, that's what matters. Uh, it's a shot-making league. And if you look at, you know, the top five offense, or the top four offenses over the last four, five years, so that's 20 offenses, only two of those in the top four were outside of the top five shooting. Only one of them was outside the top ten. If you look at the last five years of top ten offenses and look at their shooting, 
all, uh, 41 of the 50, or maybe 40 of the 50, were in the top 10 in shooting. So 80% of the top 10 offenses are in the top 10 of shooting. Total direct correlation. You got to shoot well. Okay, so that's obvious. Uh, the second one is free throw rate. Surprising to me, it's not, it's a big deal, but the Spurs and the Warriors recently <clears throat> have been able to do it without a free throw rate. In fact, in the last 10 years, or last five years, looking at 50 teams again, this is what I did. I went through the last five years, looked at the top 10 offenses. There were five of them, six of them, that were 25th or worse. So, you know, 10% of the best offenses didn't go to the line at all. And actually, surprisingly, of that, 13 of them were in the bottom 10. So that that definitely surprised me a little bit. Now, there's also a bunch, you know, 23 of the top of the 50 were in the top 10. So there's a pretty good rate. The second most important rate is free throw shooting. Offensive rebounding was fascinating because you either do it or you don't. Of the top 10 offensive teams, this is really weird, actually. There's almost no teams between 10 and 20 in offensive rank, offensive rebounding rank. So, again, last five years, top 10 offensive teams, boom. There's almost, there, you either do or you don't. There's almost no one in between. In fact, there's only 10 or, I think, 9 teams in between. You either don't offensive rebound at all, you get back in transition, or you do offensive rebound. And there's a value to both. And then there's the turnover rate. And this was really fascinating because there's no correlation, and I fundamentally believe this strongly, very, very strongly, actually. There's no correlation between turnover rate and good offense. In fact, the opposite I think when you start to worry about turnovers a great deal, you negate offense. Now, you can't be crazy. You can't go turnover 30 times. But if you take an example, Ricky Rubio drives baseline, drives to the basket. Nash dribbles out the ice set, throws a wraparound pass to Joe Ingles in the corner, and the ball bounces on the sideline and or the end line. It's a turnover. First of all, that doesn't matter because it's a dead ball turnover. So I don't like turnovers anyway because there's such a difference between a dead ball and a live ball turnover. The second thing is, let's say three plays later, he comes down, does the exact same thing, makes the pass, Ingles hits the three, you're averaging 1.5 points per those two possessions, but you have a 50% turnover rate. And you wouldn't have gotten that pass to Ingles without a risk. And if you try to eliminate turnovers and eliminate all risks, then I think what ends up happening is you negate your offense. Okay? And here's what's really interesting. Last year's top 10 offenses, there was not a single team that was top 10 in all four factors. In fact, all the top 10 offenses are below average in at least one category other than Minnesota, but they were 13th in shooting. So they had to cover up for it. But everybody else in the top 10 is bad at one of the four factors. Now, shooting is not, you know, the Thunder actually affected field goal percentage was 17th. They made up for it by offensive rebounding. So if you're going to not be a top 10 shooting team, eight of the top 10 offenses were uh, top 10 shooting teams, 80%. That's kind of the number. So if you're in the Jazz were ninth, by the way, in effective field goal percentage last year. So they're in that group. They're right there. That's why they can get this done. Now, if they increase the free throw shooting a little bit, they grab an extra offensive rebound, they still stay at ninth, they can work their way into top 10. 
Uh, and six of the top free throw teams were top ten offensive teams. The Jazz were 12th. So, the, the, you know, that's where you just kind of need to bump it. And as we talked about offensive rebounding, either you did or you didn't. There were five, six, five teams in the bottom ten, four teams in the top ten, and one team in the middle. So what would the Jazz need to be a top ten offensive team? And this is what I thought was really interesting, is it's so small. It's such a small number. So if the Jazz were to make one more two-point shot a game, one miss turns into a make, they would become a top five effective field goal percentage shooting team. How about this? If you move five mid-range shots to three-point attempts and shoot the exact same shooting percentage, just move five mid-range shots to three-point shots. It's a lot, but you can do that. You would move to 55.1 in effective field goal percentage, which would be third behind Houston and the Warriors. Now, this assumes that the league stays the same. If you move three mid-range shots to restricted area shots, that's probably harder to do. It would be the same thing as making one extra shot. Look how small that is. Right? I mean, that's what it takes here. We're talking about this. This is where the numbers are important. Like, if you can move 2% here, 2% here, 2% here. So if you make one more shot, one more shot that doesn't have to be a three, just any shot. Frankly, you take a turn a, a contested look into an open look and make it. You go to top five effective field goal percentage. Fix your shot distribution a little bit. Make it a little bit better. Jazz was good. I think it was ninth in the NBA in shot distribution. Can you get to be top five? You move five mid-range shots to three-point shots. Shoot the exact same percentage, but they're so much more valuable. You move to third in the league. And if you move three mid-range shots, you can do one of the, you, you know, I mean, you could do a mix of these, right? Okay. If you want to move your free throw rate into top ten, if you want to move your free throw rate into top ten, you take one shot and have it become two free throws. So Donovan Mitchell drives the basket. He had an incredibly low free throw rate last year. Instead of shooting the shot and missing, and it, it, he shoots the shot, and he's fouled, and he shoots two free throws, you're now top 10 in free throw rate. That 12th, boom, one. This is kind of incredible. If Donovan Mitchell drives the basket, miss, avoids contact, misses the layup, Alec Burks too. Now drives to the basket and makes and gets fouled. And the next time, the other one drives to the basket and adds an add and one. Okay, so we've got one time where you've missed and you're getting fouled. You get two free throws. The next time you're getting fouled, you're actually taking the shot, but you're adding an add and one. The Jazz would jump to number two in the NBA in free throw shooting. That's all it takes. Here's what's really interesting about free throw rank. It has dropped considerably in each of the last five years, so it has become even more important. 29%, the free throw rate is free throws divided by field goal attempts. It was .29 in 1314. Then it went to .27, stayed at .27, stayed at 2.7. Last year went to .25. That's the median team in the NBA. The amount of teams with a free throw rate over 30, so 
Free throw attempts divided by field goal attempts, .30. 13, 14, 9, 14, 15, 6, next year 4, 2, last year 1. For the Jazz to do that, they'd have to take two, turn two shots that were misses into free throw attempts. If you turn one paint floater into two free throws every game, your offensive rating would move you from 15th to 13th. If you do it twice, you go to 11th without any other change. It's kind of an interesting thing. All right, let me quickly hit offensive rebounds before we go to Daniel Coyle. This is taking a little longer than I thought, but I wanted to get this in because I did all this work this weekend. Offensive rebound. To reach top five, you need to grab 1.7 more offensive rebounds a game. It's a lot. Um... What's interesting about offensive rebounding is the difference between the 6th and 24th team is pretty minimal. Like one rebound, offensive rebound a game, where the ball bounces. The median offensive rebounding team in the league, I've talked about this a lot, has gone from 27% to 24% to 23% to 22% last year. The amount of teams that grabbed 25% of their offensive rebounds Like, I think that should be the number the Jazz are shooting for. 25% of their offensive rebounds will put them in the top five. If they're going to play big, they should get offensive rebounds. Got to get back in transition, right? They need to grab two more offensive rebounds a game to get to 25%. That's a lot. It's hard. I'm not sure it's, it's feasible. It would help a lot, though. But look at this. In 2012, 13, 23 teams did that. 13, 14, 20 teams did that. 14, 15, 14 teams did it. 15, 16, 10 teams. 16, 17, 8 teams. And last year, just 3. So you can have a really big advantage. Turnovers, I said it. I really don't care. Daniel Coyle is coming up next. Part 1 of our interview. What defines great culture? How much does narrative drive culture when a story can be told otherwise if you don't have a great culture? We talk about that in regards to Greg Popovich. Coming up tomorrow, we'll have parts three and four of that interview, and Wednesday, an interview with hopefully with Ron Boone and Thurl Bailey, kind of a roundtable to preview the season with you, and hopefully Craig Bolajack as well. We'll see if we can figure out how to get all of us together <clears throat> for that interview. Uh, today's show is brought to you by Murdoch Chevy. Murdoch Chevy at... Woods Cross, and in Logan, Chevy's got a great lineup of cars right now. I'm driving the Equinox. I just finished driving the Colorado truck. The common thread between both is how great they both are made. You can really feel how well made they are by how quiet they are. The Equinox has twin turbo, great pep, super control system. You can tell they've taken a lot of time into that. That's the kind of mid-sized SUV. The Traverse is the next size bigger. It has all the bells and whistles. It has all sorts of camera aspects to it that are cool. and has the third row of seat. And then the great SUVs are the Suburban and the Tahoe that you know Chevy for. For 94 years, Murdoch and Chevy have been together. Stop by Chevy in Woods Cross and in Logan. Get the Murdoch Guarantee, which is a price match guarantee, return policy, car washes for life, and safety inspections for life. All at Murdoch Chevy. Say hi to Tyson when you stop by in Woods Cross and in Logan. Jazz fans, did you know that the Athletic 
now is covering the Utah Jazz. That's right. The Athletic has Tony Jones in the uh, on staff now at the Athletic. Also, great article by uh, Sam Amick this week about the Lakers and how Jeannie Buss turned the whole Lakers around. Uh, Danny LaRue does a whole thing this week on the Jazz tax and the cap situation. Great in-depth articles. Uh, model is simple. No ads, no pop-ups, no audio videos. Stead readers subscribe to authentic in-depth coverage written by journalists who know their teams inside and out. Coverage goes beyond game recaps and trade speculation. Provides smarter analysis. 650 to 700 news stories published every week. Go to theathletic.com slash lockedonjazz. Theathletic.com slash lockedonjazz. The code is for 40% off for $2.99 a month. Lock theathletic.com slash locked on jazz and you'll get great stuff from all the best writers around the NBA a good fun athletic NBA ballot 32 writers pick their MVP rookie of the year league pass favorites etc that's there today as well and as I mentioned Tony Jones now writing for the athletic theathletic.com slash locked on jazz Here's Daniel Coyle and the Culture Code. And one note for you before you start tomorrow on the program, we'll analyze Donovan Mitchell going into year two and what he needs to improve it. Here it is, the Culture Code with the author. Honored, excited, fired up, pumped, nervous about having Daniel Coyle on the show, the author of Culture Code, which for those of you that have been listening to Locked on Jazz for the last month, we have sat down with each of our jazz players and done an entire interview series based on this book, The Culture Code by Daniel Coyle. And uh, Daniel, thank you first for your work and second for taking the time with us. What a neat honor to have you on and just um, what a great piece of work you put together. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. It's an honor to be here with you, David. I appreciate you asking me on. The interview series we did was because the Jazz, as they wrapped up last year, they, they closed the year winning 29 of their last 35. They're, they had this incredible bond. You could actually visually see it on the floor in how often they were talking to each other in contrast to yep. their opponent. Um, and so yep. that, that, that was the premise of it. But let me just go big picture with you. As your book, I believe you sat down with the eight companies or organizations you thought had – fabulous culture what were the major findings and takeaways that you took when interacting with these eight eight companies what a cool question no it's it's uh, i i kind of went on the journey for these last five years and, and looking at places that were in the top one percent of what they did and had 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 proven performance had acknowledged in their domains as having great culture and had done it in a sustainable way um, meaning with sort of a different cast of characters. And I ended up looking at the Navy SEALs and Pixar and the San Antonio Spurs, um, at IDEO, at Zappos, and a few other organizations. And you can feel it. I mean, your listeners know when they walk into a, a good school or a good restaurant or, or a good locker room, you don't need to uh, look at the record of a team to know that it's a winning team. And that's because they're sending all these signals that we pick up. And they're signals that basically are about connection. They're about safety they're about sharing vulnerability and they're about having a clear purpose and so um that's what i found out in the book that these places are all kind of the same place and it's it's we normally think of culture as being this like kind of magical thing that just sort of happens like it's a team's destiny to have a great culture but what i found out is that 
it's actually more like a language. You know, you send signals with your behavior, and those signals cause other signals to be sent. And when you tune into that language, this like ancient grammar of connection, when you tune into that, um, you really can start both appreciating places like the jazz and who really click into that, but you can also start like controlling it a little bit and creating it in your own life. So let me go Spurs specifically. What do you see with the Spurs? I got there the day I, the day I spent a couple of days um, with them. And first of all, it was, it was amazing to see, you know, at first when you go approach organizations like that, their reflex answer is no. They're like, no, you can't come hang out with us. And because not doing stories like this is what makes us a good culture, like avoiding stuff like this. We don't publicize ourselves. But I kept uh, sort of tapping at the door and had a couple connections and finally flew to San Antonio. And I get a call after I land, and it's the GM. It's R.C. Buford, and he picks me up at the airport, and I spend most of the next two and a half, three days hanging out in his house and going to practice and, and watching them um, just sort of be. He he was intensely curious to learn about other good cultures. That's why he invited me in. And um, that, that, that personal interest in learning, right away you start to see that. And then I got there the day after they had lost the tight game of the Thunder, and Pop walks onto the floor, and the first thing he does is he goes over to the guy who had missed the big shot the night before. And he puts his hand on his shoulder, and he starts kind of playing with him and joking with him and asking him about the dinner that Pop had arranged for that player. Pop had arranged a dinner and ordered some wine for that player, as he often does. And the Spurs eat together more often than most families. You know, they spend massive amounts of time together. And, and the coaches, they go out for a dinner the night before every game, sometimes two dinners. Uh, because Pop sees food and wine as this vehicle to create that connection with the whole person. Um, at the end of the year, each Spurs coach gets a, a, a leather-bound book with the menus of the places they visited and the wine labels of the, of the wines they've enjoyed together. So, And I'm like, wow, that's, that's pretty cool. And then we go into the film room, and I'm thinking, well, this is where we're going to see Pop. You know, you know, Pop is kind of – he can be cranky. He gives really vivid feedback uh, to his players. And I'm thinking, okay, this is where I think you're going to get real. And what comes on the screen, though, is a documentary about the, the anniversary of the Civil Rights Act. And Pop starts asking the players, like, so what would you have done? Like, what would your parents do? What did your parents do? They were alive back then. Um, and they have this really cool conversation. So he's interested in the whole person. He's, he's constantly connecting with the whole person. He's constantly doing thoughtful things for players. Um, and creating the kind of environment where people are connecting as whole people, not just as boss employee or coach player. Um, as one of the assistant coaches said, like Pop does two things. First, he tells you the truth, and then he loves you to death. And that's a really cool thing because sometimes we think coaches can only good coaches can only like be tough and tell the truth. And and it's that love piece and that connection piece that makes them, I think, unique. So. I thought there was some, there's so much to talk about here, but I thought there was something really interesting, and this is digging deep in the sports end. One of the stories you tell in the book is about what is somewhat of a legendary dinner. The night after Ray Allen hits the three, um, the Spurs have this dinner, and, um, and then they lose game seven, actually, and then they actually come back a year later and win. Maybe this is me being a media member, but this is what my thought was while I wrote this. I actually wrote this on the, uh, and, and a note on my Kindle that somewhere these good cultures or even the narrative of good culture begets more culture. So 
honestly, if Tyrone Liu of Cleveland, who has never mm-hmm. been given any credit for his coaching or any culture built, and maybe because Dan Gilbert is not worthy of building culture in Cleveland, mm-hmm. has that same dinner and loses game seven, I think he gets criticized for having a feel-good dinner the night before an important Game 7 after blowing it by having Tim Duncan on the bench when they needed an offensive rebound. And Pop gets loved for having a kumbaya dinner where they lose the next night. Now they do come back and win the championship 12 months later on a night after Mm -hmm. where, frankly, maybe the greatest NBA coach we've ever had, maybe made the greatest NBA coaching mistake of all time. Yeah, right, right. That's really interesting. That's what I think. Story is powerful, you know, is what you're saying. When you, get, when you get in these narratives, pretty soon you're going down that road and everybody's perceiving that and it begets itself some more. You know, I, I think there is, there is a bit of truth, but really what you have to do to look at it is you have to look at the whole fabric of signals that is being sent by Lou or by Pop. Now, no, no coach is so great as to not make a mistake, obviously. The question is, how do you respond to that mistake, and how do you connect to your players before, after, and during those moments of mistakes? That's what defines the culture. And I think with all these cultures where I found, with the great groups were ones that responded to crisis by coming together, right? Like, there's two things that can happen in a crisis. You can all take different cabs home, and you can all break up, and we've all seen that happen and felt that happen with the teams we love. Or you can have this instinct to come together as a family. And that instinct, you know, if, if Ty Lue had that instinct and was the most powerful member on that team and was constantly doing that throughout the year, um, then, yeah, that narrative would be, would be sort of beginning itself and established. Um, I think the reason why uh, that, that story is sort of seen as a real positive thing for Pop is because you can actually connect the dots uh, to all the other behaviors he has to all the other signals he sends, to all the other coaching he does. That, that dinner was archetypical of him. And, uh, and so I think that's why he gets the benefit of the doubt about the coaching decisions. But, you know, it, it's, it, narrative is a really strong thing. I think good cultures are, are in tune with that. And therefore, they, they kind of, they, they're smart about it. They're smart about the stories they tell. And they're smart about the stories they don't tell. Um, and, and all culture is a moving target. You can never get, it's never, I mean, the thing I realized, you know, in visiting all these places was, you know, culture is a living thing. It can blow up at any moment. Um, you know, the Spurs have obviously gone through some stuff with Kawhi Leonard where they've realized, man, we got to create a better connection. This, this, this isn't right. Um, so this idea that once culture is sort of figured out that they're, they're going to be good for a long time is really, really false. I mean, it is, it is a, it's a sport that you never stop playing. Um, and, and it's and it's a signal that you never stop sending. And it's it's really, really hard to do it at a high level for a long time. Hey, thanks so much. Daniel's cell phone wasn't great. I know, what a bummer. But I appreciate you guys hanging with that and, and sticking with that uh, and his cell phone. It, it doesn't ever get worse, but honestly, it doesn't ever really get better. Coming up more with Daniel Coyle. What was the value of Rudy Gobert's tweet inside of a culture? And safety is a vital thing for players to feel or people to feel in a culture. How do players feel safe with 19,000 people yelling at them and social networks telling them all their thoughts? We'll touch on those things coming up with Daniel Coyle. Parts three and four are tomorrow on the program. And then we'll have an 
Jazz preseason roundtable on Wednesday on Locked on Jazz. Today's show is brought to you by Mizuma USA. Mizuma USA. If you're a small business owner, say one to four, five, one to four, five employees, you're driving your company, you want to get everything done, and then you got all the bookkeeping and all the taxes, and it's a total pain. Not anymore, because Mizuma USA will take care of it for you. Here's how it works. For $75 a month, you get a bookkeeper and a tax person. Unlimited, con- unlimited consultation from a CPA. Personal business and tax returns. You hook up with them, set up, orientation call, give them ac- get the access set up so that they have access to all your numbers. First set of reports immediately comes. Tax planning discussion. Every month you get a report. Every quarter you get tax planning call. The end of the year, the tax thing is done. We're waiting for you. It's incredible. No contract. Cancel any times. No hidden fees. Enough, Locke. Tell me how I get it. MizumaUSA.com. Oh, use the promo code LOCKED or call 801-980-2102 for a free consultation. That's 801-980-2102 for a free consultation. 801-980-2102. Mizuma, USA. Life is complicated, especially right now. You're spending more time inside, unable to go to restaurants, and that means you're cooking dinner. But if you're like me, I hate cooking. Multiple trips to the grocery store, hours of monotonous meal prep just so you can scarf down your food in minutes. So when it's dinner time, I grab my phone, open up an app, and order something. But after convenience fees, delivery fees, and who knows whatever other fees, it ends up being close to $100 for two people. But then I met Freshly. Just put up your feet and relax while Freshly chefs and nutritionists do all the hard work. All you do is heat for three minutes and dinner's done. Imagine a better for you golden oven fried chicken, steak peppercorn with sauteed carrots and French green beans, and my personal favorite, buffalo chicken with loaded mashed cauliflower. It's got fewer carbs. That's just a few of the 30-plus health-conscious options to choose from. Freshly understands that food needs to be delicious, healthy, and simple, because let's be honest here, if it's not easy, I'm not going to do it, and if it doesn't taste good, I don't want to eat it. Freshly is offering our listeners $40 off, $40 off for their first two orders at Freshly.com slash LockedOnNBA. That's Freshly.com slash LockedOnNBA. Throughout this interview, I'm going to intermix jazz stories because we've done this with the jazz and then the big picture of the book. Um, so we'll try to go in, in between the two throughout this conversation with Daniel Coyle, the author of Culture Code, also the Talent Code, also um, wrote a really interesting book with uh, Tyler Hamilton called The Secret Race about the whole world of bike racing, um, which is a great read, and the doping and everything else that was going on there. So uh, grab that as well. You you. Uh, going back to the jazz for a second, you wrote, you said responding to crisis is coming together. I don't know if you know the story, but last year the jazz, I mean, I think they might've been two and 16 on the road. They were not about 12 games below 500. It's January 5th. They're done. Like it's over. And Rudy Gobert, their center sends out a tweet, four words. We will be fine. That's awesome. And the story is they finished the year going 29 and 6 when he comes back from an injury. What is yeah. what does that do to a group? And it's uh it, it it's 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 pretty cool. I mean, when you have when you have guys it's funny. I I I do a little bit of work. I live in Cleveland for part of the year and I'm connected to the Cleveland Indians, which I think in some ways you can draw some cool parallels um with the Jazz. You know, we're we're mid small market team. 
um, no no superstars, uh, but have been able to perform at a really high level um, and have been knocking at the door uh, for some years. And not because of any, you know, unbelievable talent, but because of the way the pieces we have combined into something bigger um, and because we have a smart front office and a great coach. And so that um, – when you see players, it's just great. You know, ultimately, cultures of teams are led by the players. Um, you know, we always talk about coaching front office, and that is really, it's meaningful. They, they set the change. They create the conditions. But that kind of signal sent on a team to have somebody like that who is who's, who sends that signal of confidence and connection um, in, a, in a public way and also does it in a private way, you can see – the power of that. There's a great book, just to shine light on another book that you might be interested in, called The Captain Class. And it's it's by Sam Walker, a writer for the Wall Street Journal. And he goes into the great piece in history and identifies the presence of a certain personality as a captain of that team, as, as a leader on that team. And and he, what he discovers is that that personality isn't what you necessarily would expect. It's not like the Derek Jeter, Michael Jordan, super public types. It's guys who are quiet. It's guys who are aggressive and, and very, very physical. Um, and it's guys who really connect to their team well. They don't necessarily connect to the public or the front office, but they're, they're the beating heart of the team. And when you have you know, somebody like Rudy uh, be that guy for you, it's, uh, it's incredibly powerful. Big picture back to the book Culture Code. What are the skills that are needed to build a culture? You know, um, there's really three that I identify in the, in, in the book. Um, and, and the first one, and, and to picture them, you've got to kind of picture a great culture is essentially like a flock of birds flying through a forest. Like they're connected. There's not one person telling them what to do. They're solving problems together in this connected way. When you see the SEALs, when you see Pixar, that's what they're doing. They're adding up to more than the sum of their parts. So there's three things that have to happen for that, for that, that flock to move together through obstacles and overcome challenges. And that's first, they've got to build safety. They've got to be connected. That's how human beings get connected. We build safety with each other. We create a sense of belonging, which can sometimes feel sort of magical, but it's not. It's about sending a signal, like Pot did, um, when he shows a, a videotape of a, of a CNN documentary, or when he has dinner with somebody. I care about you. We're connected. We share a future. And secondly, if you're going to move through that force together, you've got to share information. And the way we humans do that is by sharing vulnerability, by opening up and not, not BSing each other, by telling each other the truth about what's going on, about how we can improve, about how we can do it better. Um, those are hard moments, but sharing vulnerability is that, is that second skill. And you see that in all kinds of ways, like when Navy SEALs, when they get off after, after a mission, the first thing they do before they eat a meal is that they circle up and they talk about what went wrong. They, they share weakness. They, they confess mistakes. Um, and that way they're able to get better together. And then the third skill is, is establishing purpose. You're having a clear direction, like why are we here? What are we doing? What is our purpose? And it's easy to say, you know, with the basketball team, our purpose is to win games. Our purpose is to, um, you know, is to score more points every night. And that's, that's true. That's kind of a shallow purpose. But what's the deeper purpose? Why are you there? Are you trying to lift up the community? Are you trying to build a legacy? Are you trying – what are you trying to do? Are you trying to knock off Goliath? Like, what's the purpose? So um, those three things, building safety, having a connection – um, sharing information by sharing vulnerability and be open with each other and then having a, have a super clear purpose in your windshield. Those, those would be the three skills. 
these NBA players specifically live a life in which they perform in front of 20,000 people, many of which will boo them, uh, even Santa Claus in Philadelphia, as the saying goes. They then fin- <laughs> that, that I think this is the most untalked about thing that's going on in their lives. They finish every game. The first thing they pick up is this device that is, does make phone calls, but that's the least of what it does. And they check their social network. And every Yahoo fan that wants to tell them they sucked that day sends them an at message on their Twitter and they read it or they see their comments on Instagram. How do young men who happen to be athletes, could be, could be women in WNBA, but in this case NBA athletes, feel any safety in that environment? Yeah, I think it's insane. There's a reason LeBron turns off social media when the playoffs start. I mean, there's a reason that the that, that top athletes actively build an environment for themselves where they can focus on what matters. To me, and I've seen it happen in, you know, in baseball clubhouses where the level of, of distraction and when you're, when you're putting that stuff in your windshield, yeah, there's a part of it that can be motivating, and you have seen people turn that into fuel where I'm going to prove those people wrong, I'm going to prove the naysayers wrong. But the potential for... Um, being distracted is unbelievable. And so I, I think it, 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 it maybe creates an opportunity. I mean, I'd be curious to flip the question back on you. When you see a team come together like the Jazz did, how are they navigating that? I mean, are, are there explicit rules on how they do that, or are there implicit rules where hey, it's just not cool to sort of focus on that among there? How do you guys navigate that question? Well, I think there's two things. One is when you're winning, it's easy because you're not getting – Right, winning begets winning. You're not getting blasted on the social networks. Two, if yep. you follow the group, their inner social network interaction is hysterical and also meaningful. So Joe Ingles is this card who, if Donovan Mitchell, our youngster, posts something, there's a 80% chance that there's a snide comment coming from, but a fun snide comment from Joe Ingles right afterwards, right? Like, right. hey, where are my right. brand new shoes? Or, well, it'd be nice, you know, just whatever it might be. Same time, the one that really moved me this year was Jay Crowder's mother passed last year. He posted mm-hmm. on Instagram something about just the loss he feels and how every day it's so hard. Ricky Rubio, our point guard whose mother had died 18 months ago, mentions on the bottom of it publicly I'm with you. Wow. Yeah. It's awesome. That is absolutely awesome. You know, pretty cool. You know, so these, these tools have got positive elements and negative elements. And how do you magnify the positive and try to minimize the negative is the, is the challenge. Not just they face. I guess we all face it to a certain extent. That last one, I, I thought hit the vulnerability card that you talked about. Yeah, that's right. That's right. You know, it's kind of that those kind of moments end up being, you know, they call them vulnerability loops in psychology. It's like it's not just one person. It's it's two people. It's somebody saying something and somebody else saying, "Been there. I'm with you. I feel you." You know, and that stuff is that's just really important. It builds. And the crazy thing, I mean, we kind of misunderstand trust and vulnerability. Like we typically think, like, "Hey, I've got to build up some trust before I can be vulnerable." Like that's how we think about it. But the fact is, when you look at the science, we've got it backwards. When two people are vulnerable together, it creates trust, cooperation, cohesion, and, and better performance, actually. So this idea that uh, teams can really benefit by sort of creating environments where, where guys can kind of open up, talk about weakness, talk about what went wrong, um, 
seems like the opposite of what you'd expect. Like you'd expect, no, wait, everybody should be really confident. Everybody, nobody should admit weakness. Um, but over and over in programs, when you, when you look at winning teams, I know at uh, Clemson, the football coach has a, has a special chair, and somebody sits in the chair and kind of tells their life story and ties, you know, are in tears. It's, uh, it's like this amazing thing. It's somebody different in the chair every week. And, and, and at University of Florida, um, you know, there, there's there's a similar sort of program where they're where they're sharing and sharing and sharing, and it's it's a real sort of basic human thing. It, it cuts against kind of the you know Vince Lombardi, shut up and do your job, tough jock archetype that some some of us grew up with, um, because it, it it seems strange at first, but actually it's it's incredibly powerful when it comes to to creating the kind of cohesion that really will drive our high culture. Yet at the same time in your book, you have an interesting piece that we're all trained to look for danger. Exactly, which is why these vulnerability and safety things go in a loop, right? They reinforce each other, which is like the safer you feel, the more vulnerable you can be, which makes you feel like a little safer. So when you get that spiral going the right way, you have this continual loop that's building connection, building connection. The thing is, though, it can be fractured. You know, it's got fractured with Kawhi Leonard. He couldn't have been more connected when I visited out there with, with that team. But something happened along the way to disrupt that. And, you know, because these, these crazy brains that we've got are always keenly looking out. You can never create safety and say, okay, we're safe now. We're locked in. Boom, we're done. It's not. It's like a candle. You have to keep relighting it. Like it runs out, and our brains are always looking for. Man, am I really safe here? Is this? Are these really? These people really have my best interest in mind? Um, which is why things like like food and sharing time together are so such important signals, um, especially in an environment where you know you know what it's it's a business. There's basketball is a business. You cannot you know contracts have lengths, and and there's there's elements to it that are built in that drive people apart. There's even elements in the game that drive people apart. There's a crazy stat that I came upon in the research for the book where somebody did a deep dive on playoff basketball, looking at how scores scores on playoff teams are rewarded with bigger contracts, and they drilled into the data, and what they discovered was if you if you pass someone the ball and they make a shot in the playoffs, it's like giving them 20000 bucks because – if you're a scorer in the playoffs, you make more money. And if you just have the sits, it doesn't get rewarded in contracts. And so you're actually to create connection in that kind of environment where I know, like, hey, if I, if I pass you the ball, I have a disincentive to pass you the ball. I have an incentive to be a ball hog and shoot. Like, you're, you're actually trying to swim upstream against this current of signals that is driving you apart. Um, so it really takes some special people and special energy and special intent and awareness to create and send the kind of signals that build, build great culture in that environment. Thanks for sticking with Daniel's cell phone. I know it wasn't the best. Super appreciate that uh, for hanging with that. Tomorrow, segments three and four of that, and then Wednesday, a roundtable. We'll be in Sacramento. The season's right around the corner. The opener's on Tuesday. Looking forward to it. I'll talk to you tomorrow. We'll analyze Donovan Mitchell a little bit tomorrow, looking into his year number two on the program as well. That's all coming up on Locked On Jazz this week. Also, remember your daily podcast, Locked On NBA, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Rejecting the screen has been retweeted by Kobe, Dame Lillard, and Vince Carter. So it's fair to say you should give it a shot. I'm Noah Kozlov. And I'm Adam Stanko. Rejecting the screen hits your feed every Tuesday and Thursday. On Tuesday, 
We talk hoops and a little bit of life. On Thursday, we go ISO with a guest. Stories from anyone and everyone who has touched the NBA with tales we promise you've never heard before. Find Rejecting the Screen right now wherever you get podcasts and hit that subscribe button.